trigger warning. This podcast contains a deep discussion of grief, loss, self-harm and suicide, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about the mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations with me, your host, as always, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else that person is passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. Doing podcasts with well-known faces, celebrities, is all well and good. But I always say to people, it's the episodes I do with my everyday, normal people with extraordinary stories that makes this pod what it is and why I do it. So in this episode, I'm checking in with a close friend, a previous Behind the Decks guest and big friend of the pod, Connor, aka Mr Wax. His name is Matt Tubb. He is a regular lad who works in retail, but has an incredible journey and one which I'm really pleased to be sharing with you, Venters. In this episode, we discuss Matt's experience of bullying in school, as well as his self-esteem and body issues, living with having moles on his face. We also discuss the mental health impact one particular romantic relationship had on him growing up, suicide, gambling addiction, self-harm, and the grief he experienced losing his grandmother in 2015. This is how our check-in went. Matt, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. We have taken a bit of a while to get this. is a bit, a bit, a bit of bad stuff on my end because I was rescheduling it a few times and we had a bit of technical difficulties before we started this, but we are finally here. The stars have aligned. How are you, mate? How's everything going on? How is a bit of normality feeling for you? Well, it's not totally normal very recently just got given my mum's cold i'm now under the weather with that a little bit so i was I was really worried that i might have to delay it myself yesterday but i feel okay i've absolutely nuked it with medication and all the rest of it so i'm hoping we're gonna have no issues and it's all gonna be good smooth sailing from here out Excellent, mate. I, I, de- I definitely hope it's not covid and it's not just disguising yourself as a cold so <laughs> yeah oh, you tested yourself you and me both mate you and me both Okay, mate. So I really wanted to get your voice on the pod because when Connor, friend of the pod, aka Mr. Wax, told me about your story, it just really spoke to me and and, and it had so many commonalities with my journey as well. So we've got lots to crack on with and gambling addiction especially, we're going to talk about it later on in the pod, but it's not something I've really discussed on the Just Checking In pod. So shall we just start the show? This pod's going to be pretty straightforward, Matt. So we're going to jump straight in and we're going to talk about your journey first. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Talk to me about your early life, teenage years, family, upbringing. And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you had? Who's the Matt we meet here? Let's start with family and primary school first. Primary school was relatively okay. Had a good amount of friends, good few laughs and everything. That was sort of my first experience in the sort of later years of being bullied. I think the best experience I had was playing football in primary school, which got me absolutely hooked into it. Been a firm fan ever since for the mighty posh, 
who just been promoted this season, so that's fantastic. But yeah, it was towards the end. I was fairly active during primary school. Unfortunately, I did have quite a bit of puppy fat at the end of primary school, going into preliminary years of secondary school as well. There wasn't anything sort of stand out. There was no abuse or anything of that kind. It was mostly smooth sailing, as I said, until sort of the bullying began. And in primary school, it was mostly just on my weight, which dented my confidence a fair amount. I stopped being so active in playing sports and all the rest of it. But yeah, there wasn't really anything that majorly stood out as to my mental health. We'll come back to your weight issues in a second, mate. But I just want to talk about the bullying, if I can now, because you've had moles on your face since you were quite young, Matt. And you told me this was one of the main reasons you were picked on as a child and me and you both were bullied and kids are quite cruel back then and any low-hanging fruit was just picked up on like shark sniffing blood essentially tell me how that bullying started was it just verbal abuse and then how did it affect your mental health and maybe the actions you tried to take to treat them or even remove them that kind of bullying started in secondary school i remember being in a maths lesson quite a vivid memory and the two kids behind me were making comments about it and all the rest of it and then I ended up getting in trouble for for turning around and basically trying to tell them to shut up and knock it off and all the rest of it. Uh, That was probably the worst bullying I had to go through unfortunately as obviously my weight I can do something about that but unfortunately there wasn't really anything I could do about my moles. I remember I did try to look, sort of look into doing it and, and, and getting them removed or lessened. I remember I had numerous treatments at the GP near me in which they actually applied, I believe it was liquid nitrogen to them to try and burn them away, which was quite painful in hindsight and unfortunately didn't really work all too that well. I remember the top layer of them started to peel but underneath, they were just as prominent as ever, really. At the time you got the liquid nitrogen treatment, your bullies also started to grow up a bit, and thankfully the comments sort of fell off a little bit. Hopefully a cliff, but maybe not. Do you think that was a positive coincidence, and did it give you a boost to your mental health, knowing that people weren't picking up on them and you could just kind of go about normal life like you could? Yeah, like you say, it was just a massive coincidence, I, I believe, as... In hindsight, I mean, that's a wonderful thing. But I don't remember them making sort of any more comments beyond that time, as you say. They're all kind of packed in around the right time, which, like you say, I felt pretty good about it, thinking, oh, brilliant, the treatments sort of worked at the time, being sort of a naive kid. But it definitely helped my confidence grow a little bit. I remember it was around the same time I got my first girlfriend, whereas previously that was sort of a big no and I would much prefer to be with my friends as opposed to a relationship or anything like that. I want to go back to the weight issues that you mentioned mate because like you said the mole issue you could try and be proactive about it but unfortunately it didn't work but the weight issue you could be proactive about it and as well as that you had braces as a teenager now thank you you didn't get abuse because of the braces however it also accelerated your weight loss I mean I kind of try and be careful here on the on the on the question here, but why was that? My mind is all over the place. I apologise for not mentioning that. Yeah, I had braces from 
year eight time, so roughly from 13, 14, for right up until I was sort of 50, which I think it was around 12 as opposed to 13. Obviously, with braces, as many people will know, so you can't really have chewy sweets, fizzy drinks, basically stuff that, as a kid, you indulge yourself in, probably more often than not, with your own pocket money, and end up piling on the pounds. I don't know if this is the same for everyone who's had braces, but for me, I really struggled eating regular food, let alone sort of chewy sweets as well. So I remember after I sort of got them fitted or attached or whatever you want to call ended up having a mcdonald's sort of as a treat for as a well done for going through it and all the rest of it i remember i had some chicken nuggets and i couldn't chew for the life of me so in the end i had to basically suck on them until they were soft enough for me to just swallow which was quite an experience let me tell you that but yeah it accelerated my weight loss and i think i was the skinniest i'd ever been when that moment came when you were allowed to take the braces out how big a moment was that for you did you feel a lot more confident from that point onwards or not yeah definitely 100 percent. my teeth were never sort of picked up on by bullies but that's probably one of the most surprising things i had one tooth that was sort of so bad that i could stick it out over my bottom lip and then obviously with the moles as well Obviously, again, hindsight allows me to laugh at this. Um, I was getting comments saying I was similar to Nanny McPhee. And I remember when I had my braces off, mixed with sort of the weight loss and then the nitrogen treatments, it was sort of my glow up like Nanny McPhee, I kind of thought. And happy coincidence, it all sort of stopped around that time. Obviously, that was mostly due to the fact that I'd gone through puberty, maturing, and many people have a glow up during puberty so I don't think I was any different really. I want to move on to relationships and you mentioned one there a little bit earlier in the pod but in 2010 when you were in secondary school you also had one relationship was it was a bit of a roller coaster for your mental health let me just say that can you set the scene for the listeners and why even before it started it was causing you a bit of distress without going into I guess too much detail (laughs) in respect to the people who were involved in it. Obviously, you know, I won't mention any names due to respect for them. And, you know, I'm at the point now where, where no grudges are held. So, you know, if they're listening, I'm hoping that, you know, I'm just explaining my side of the story as opposed to sort of picking anything out. But yeah, I remember I was dealing with just the pressures of school, I think. So I wasn't very, you know, those nice guys you hear about who are like, oh, choose me, you know, I will treat you so good. I was unfortunately one of them, I believe. There was never any confirmation or anything like that, but I think I was definitely of that attitude. And I remember I was quite good friends with this one lad, and um, obviously the love interest we were super close friends with. Most people probably know who I'm talking about from my school, as so many people would say, oh, I should totally be together and go out with each other and all the rest of it. For a lot of the time we were hanging out, she already had a boyfriend it was a pretty toxic relationship and you know i was attempting to be sort of the white knight so to speak and be like look you don't have to worry about that anymore you know i'm here god knows what i would have done at the age of 14 but there we go so i had feelings for for quite a long time probably going on from the age of 14 well up until close to 16 years old 
and my best friend at the time knew this but i remember he text messaged me one night and said look i've sort of developed feelings for the girl in question as well would you mind if i made a move this was probably about a week after i'd first asked her out myself and she said she wasn't looking for a boyfriend at the time let's see what happens in the future and i was a little bit annoyed by him even asking this because i was in my head i was thinking well i've liked her for well over a year by this point and and you're telling me you've, you've just developed feelings in the last couple of weeks so in my mind i was probably thinking yeah go for it mate let's see how well this goes so i i said yeah go for it you know i, I want to say tongue-in-cheek but obviously there's no way to get that across at my age it was, it was mostly just me having a tantrum so to speak he asked her out and she said yes and and they started a relationship together so yeah that was uh quite fun you told me off air that you believed it was your fault why you had those i guess indecisions about wanting to go out with her initially because you didn't object to him asking her out i doubt that made things any easier because you said to me there was no bad guy in this situation Despite that, how difficult was that period for you? Yeah, definitely. Like you say, off air when we spoke about it, there was no bad guy. If anything, he was the good guy in the situation because a lot of people at that age, especially, wouldn't have even been like, Look, are you okay with this? But he actually did. And that's something that I don't think it was until I got older that I actually appreciated that he went out of his way to check with me as opposed to just acting on his feelings and I genuinely believe that if I had said can you not he wouldn't have done but like you say because there was no sort of bad guy or if there was I was the bad guy then there was no one to sort of blame and had he have been the bad guy it would have been quite easy to carry on and if anyone asked just be like oh yeah I can't believe he, he betrayed me like that or did this or did that which I think made it a lot more difficult to deal with. Most relationships that don't end well do tend to have a bad guy. Generally speaking, of course, you know, there's, there's plenty of reasons why relationships break down. But in that moment, and for the duration of their relationship, that was really difficult to deal with, just because there was no one to blame it on. And it was something that I had to look back at myself and be like, well, why did you say yes? that it was totally fine for you to do that if clearly you aren't fine with it. Like you said, that love triangle that was created was making you question your self-esteem and your self-worth. But eventually you you did get together with that person in 2011 after she broke up with your mate. Was that relationship what you hoped it would be when you were wishing it was you or not? Yeah, like say, that did give me some self-esteem issues because... As she had told me, she wasn't ready for a relationship. And then a week or, or so later, she ends up going out with my mate. I was thinking, well, I must be the deciding factor. She doesn't want to be with me. Is it because of how I look? Is it because of things I do? That was quite difficult to come to terms with. Things, unfortunately, didn't work out for them. And, you know, as things hadn't worked, it wasn't an immediate thing. I think there was a few months where her and I would be hanging out again, sort of in our group of friends. And at this point, I had vowed that I'd moved on. As midway through their relationship, I became 
civil with them, you know, I would talk and hang around with them again, whereas previously I was just sort of avoiding them, trying to live in my own world to forget about it, which I think definitely helped. I was a lot less intense after they broke up and we were hanging out again, and in my head I was thinking, I'm not going to catch feelings again, that's the end of it. And then I remember we were sat on a field one day and ended up having a kiss and things sort of went from there and then we finally sort of got together after months of will they won't they you know i'm definitely no no ross but yeah it was quite a fun development that i definitely wasn't expecting to be honest you told me off air that despite all the fun that you had you weren't the partner you'd have liked to be during this point in your life i mean you were a kid back then so no one's no one's perfect but why did you say that? And then what learnings did you take from the relationship when it ended? I think because of, by this point, with the bullying and what I thought was normal anxiety and everything, in hindsight, they were sort of the early warning signs, which sort of came out of nowhere, really, about dark thoughts like what's going to happen. It was very difficult for me, as it was my first relationship as well, which I only got the idea of how to be a boyfriend from tv shows and films and all the rest of it which i mean you don't need me to say is just a terrible idea only in fairy tales does it ever work out like that you can't apply what you see on the screen to real life i don't think i was trusting enough i don't think i was patient enough i never sort of stopped her from going out with her friends or anything like that it wasn't to that point and i was so caught up and I think very complacent as well. In the first few months and everything, I was very much of, you know, I've got to do everything I can to try and keep her, be as nice as I can, do things for her and all the rest of it. But after that point, I just got super complacent and it was very much me doing the bare minimum. I don't think I was very honest with her. Obviously, we'll come back to this, but that's around the same time I picked up my gambling addiction. And, you know, I was very dishonest about that. I'm no therapist or anything, but I believe that because of the hardships I had with my self-esteem and confidence, I think that definitely had an effect. I think if I'd had a little more self-belief in myself, I probably would have been a much better boyfriend. And with how we started as well, I think it was, as sad as it is to say, I think it was doomed from the start just because of the circumstances prior to actually being together. Nothing on her end, of course, but for my thoughts and my feelings that what if, you know, she didn't like me like that. I was just constantly worried that things were going to just end between us. So I think I had the completely wrong mindset going into the relationship. For a few months, it was relatively okay. We were happy, but then after probably about six months or so i got into that complacent mindset from there and you know i just wasn't as caring or attentive as i should have been despite all of the relationship turmoil you were going through it was at the start of sixth form where your i guess true in inverted commas mental health difficulties began matt you exhibited symptoms of depression in particular and that was at the time when you decided to drop out of sixth form altogether why was that? And then tell me about your journey at this point and the Matt we meet here. 
we were still together by sixth form. We went to the same college and everything. I was doing performing arts, which isn't the most glamorous thing in the world. I think I went for that for the stereotypical reason. But you hear people only go for those kind of courses because it's an easy ride, which isn't true at all. And this is coming from someone who took that option because of those stereotypes that it was an easy ride. I very much didn't know what I wanted to do with myself at this point, but time was creeping up on me to do something in sixth form. So it was very much, uh, this seems like the place I can have the most fun and do the least amount of work, which again, it was just such a negative attitude, which I think was the main sort of symptom of my depression or anxiety, which, whichever it might be, that sort of causes that thinking the whole lack of motivation and not really wanting to do much or wanting to do the least that is possible so by this point i was well and truly complacent with my relationship i was at the point where in my head i was thinking yeah she's not going to leave me i could do whatever i want we don't have to talk all the time we don't have to go out on dates or anything like that i remember and, you know, I, th I think this is karma for how, obviously, she ended the relationship probably a couple of years after this point. I remember actually having a night out with my mates. I didn't do anything, you know, didn't cheat or anything like that. But I was I was talking to them because at the time they were all single and they were, you know, living life to the fullest and all the rest of it. And I do remember thinking and saying to them, oh, you know, part of me wishes that I was single, you know, and, and we can all have a laugh and all the rest of it which I suppose is a normal thing to think, but I do remember having that in the back of my mind, thinking maybe I do want to be single, and then feeling incredibly guilty for even thinking that, and sort of wasting her time. So that was quite difficult. I just ended up turning into someone who I didn't like, and I don't think many other people, the friends especially I've got in my life now, they wouldn't have liked. The big trigger for you here wasn't relationship based it was actually a mix up with your coursework why was that moment so overwhelming for you at this period i remember we had an assignment it was midway through the first year and we had an assignment due for christmas and i left it to the last minute lack of motivation but just left it to the last minute did everything i could to avoid doing it and then probably in the last 48 hours before it was due in i cracked on with it and got it all done handed it in received general feedback about it it was okay and then i totally forgot about it left it and then it was probably the month before i'd finished my first year of college that they came back to me and said oh your assignment from christmas still had a bit more you had to do to it that's going to be due before we leave or before the college year is over so we need that within the next couple of weeks or so and i think that was sort of the breaking point i'd struggle to motivate myself to go to college there were days where i woke up and i thought oh, i just can't be bothered today which again in hindsight was probably symptoms of my depression building and reaching not a dangerous point but definitely something that should have caught attention and spoken to my gp about and i remember when i got that feedback it totally annihilated sort of the rest of my motivation to go to college because I thought, well, I can't remember 
what I had for tea last week, let alone this assignment over Christmas. I've got no idea what I have to do, you know, what I'm going to do. And then in my head, I was just like, well, fine, you know, that's it. I'm not enjoying myself. I'll just drop out of college, which is actually what I ended up doing over the summer holidays. I finished up at college and that was it. I didn't go back for my second year. Initially, I was just making excuses. Oh, I'm not feeling well. Something's happened. Can't get in for whatever reason. Just rubbish excuses like that just to avoid having the discussion of I don't want to do it anymore, which wasn't so bad at the time just because I did have a job, thankfully, that I could sort of fall back on. There's a lot of sort of stigma around people going through mental health and all the rest of it. If they're not at school or they've got a job, they're wasting themselves, they're sponging off people. I think you've really got to know someone's story and understand what they're going through and, and their struggles before you think he's just lazy or she's lazy because he or she doesn't have a job or isn't going to college. If I didn't have a job, I think things would have gotten a lot worse for me a lot sooner. I want to move on now, Matt, because another big trigger for your mental health difficulties was not just the mix-up with your coursework, but it was losing your grandmother in 2015. Now, despite her old age, you weren't really prepared for it, were you? Because she had a very sudden stroke. If you could, just tell me about the build-up to this event and then maybe the grieving process and where you were when you found out she had passed. I believe I was around 16, 17 at the time. And I was very fortunate that prior to this, the only sort of dealing I had with death was from a few pets that I've had previously. So this was my sort of first human relationship that unfortunately ended with a loved one passing away. Leading up to it, there was no feelings of poor mental health in, in terms of that relationship. I always had sort of a good relationship with her. Um, you know, she would always look after me where my parents were at work over the sort of weekend. Um, I remember she used to take me to a little place called Newages where I think she would do the bingo. She would always buy me a comic book or something that I could uh, I could flip through while I was there. They were sort of some of my fondest memories. Prior to the stroke, she had a couple of sort of accidents. She had a couple of falls just because she was reaching old age. And I remember telling you about one in which she actually broke her hip when she fell. You know, my family were intent on getting her to the hospital. I remember she just said, oh, just give me some paracetamol, I'll be, I'll be okay. You know, obviously she had broken her hip. So she was, she was always quite a resilient woman from my dad's side. And he's very much the same, I believe. That was probably one of the hardest things because obviously it was his mum who had passed away. Seeing him and, and, and dealing with that was difficult for me to see. Like I said, I just wasn't expecting it. I remember he would always go out at the weekend to go help her with her shopping and do what needed to be done. I remember the day it happened, he came home in pieces because he had found her on the floor and she had to go to hospital and he was on his way. He just wanted to stop in and tell us all what was going on. Yeah, it turns out she had had a stroke the night before and unfortunately wasn't found until the next day, which isn't a good sign to say in the least and at this point this was when I started feeling guilty that I was so enveloped in my own life and so 
blasé about everyone in my life that I didn't spend time with her anymore I didn't visit her I wasn't particularly helpful or anything like that you know if, if my parents asked me to do something for her I remember a couple of times really the only times I sort of saw her were if we were having work done on our house and we needed to take the dog up to my grandma's to make sure that he was out of the way so he didn't get hurt it's a very loud mouth dog a lot of the times he would just bark at them at the workmen so we had to keep him out of the way so that didn't happen but other than that I didn't really visit her on my own accord it was mostly if I had to which as I say led to a lot of feelings of guilt that maybe you know if I'd done more maybe if I was a better grandson or, or something like that that I just wasn't doing enough I've had feelings that it was my fault which it wasn't at all yes there probably are things I could have done but it's one of those horrible things in life that unfortunately happens regardless I talked to many many guests about grief Matt and one perspective that comes up and it's we sort of debate it a little bit is that grief can be more stigmatized than mental health is that a perspective you'd agree with or disagree with and if so or if so not why is that I think it is, or at least it's on a very even keel with mental health. And I think that's because everyone's got their own way of dealing with it and coping with it. And they probably expect other people to deal with it in the same way as well. So for me, it meant that I clammed up. I stopped talking to people quite so much. I didn't let people in. And I was very much sealing my feelings and thoughts off to the world which combined with my poor mental health at the time or my worsening mental health at the time I don't think it reached rock bottom level yet it was definitely on the way there though but I think with that I wanted to sort of shut myself off and it was definitely the bad move but my parents would would constantly be talking about it whereas I just didn't want any reminders in my mind I sort of still blamed myself and talking about it just made me feel worse and feel even more guilty that it was having such an effect on everyone. But yeah, it's the same with everyone in terms of grief doesn't get the credit it deserves for making people feel as bad as it does. So one of the standout things as well, again, just speaking from my own personal experience, is I remember during the service we had for my grandma, I got that niggling thought that I wanted to laugh. You know, I don't know why. It's probably one of those intrusive thoughts that that you, that you hear so much about, which, as far as I'm aware, everybody has. I've had other friends say that they find inappropriate things funny and all the rest, and, and that's just probably their way of dealing with it. And this was my first funeral at this point, or the, or the first one I remember anyway. And it was so surreal, crying my eyes out, and then trying not to stop myself from laughing, or trying to stop myself from laughing. Because of sort of things like that, a lot of people keep how they grieve a secret unless they're very outgoing about it. So, you know, you, you have those people who, who are quite talkative about it and, and share how they feel and things they think. What I see is the correct way, the, the, the healthy way. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's so many people who know a lot more than I do that there is no healthy way to what the healthiest way to grieve is what you're comfortable with but considering 
in my mind that I had this stereotypical way of this is how I've got to grieve and I wasn't doing that again that just was quite overwhelming for me I want to move on to Matt as an adult now because you've had quite a lot of mental health difficulties mate as an adult including two attempts to take your own life let's start with the first one if you could say just walk me through the build up to it obviously without going into too much detail perhaps what triggered it and then how you felt in that moment were there any signs that you were struggling from the outside from the outside no the first time i did it it was a shock to most of the people if not all of the people in my life my friends had no idea my family had no idea the people i worked with had no idea and what's more is not only did the suicide attempt hope i'm okay saying the s word the initial attempt opened everyone's eyes to what i was going through and it kind of opened my eyes as well after the support i received for it and i remember that night i was talking with all my friends in a group chat on on facebook and we were all cracking jokes and, and giving each other a hard time and everything and i remember they were cracking jokes about where i worked as this was after i dropped out of college so i wasn't really making the most of myself i was in the bog standard retail job i wasn't a manager wasn't a supervisor i was doing the regular cashier stuff stocking shelves which there's nothing wrong with that and, and I, I, I shouldn't have felt ashamed of that but there was always that part of me that thinks i'm wasting myself here and because so many people said that i was wasting myself as well i don't think they meant it in a malicious way it was more of a you can do anything you set your mind to way in an attempt to inspire and motivate me to do more with myself as opposed to being stuck in the same rut doing the same thing and i remember my friends in this group chat were cracking jokes at where i worked as i say and that was really the straw that broke the camel's back because Obviously, they were just cracking jokes. They didn't mean it at all, you know. But in my mind, they were looking down on me. And at this point, I'd pushed everyone else away. Because by this point, I'd split up with my girlfriend as well. So I was still having sour feelings from that and everything. And then with my grandma passing away, with, as we'll get to it, my gambling addiction, building and progressing. And then having my friends say things like that on a night that I had an argument with my parents as well everything just came together that night and I remember I was listening to music and I was sort of zombified after those comments came in from my friends I stopped replying and I just went downstairs and attempted to overdose after you tried to take your own life mate you were recommended for one-to-one -one counseling However, this journey wasn't as smooth either. Can you tell me more about your therapy journey here and how you eventually found the help of the Stanford Resource Centre and a very nice man called Neil? Yeah, so uh, after the attempt on my own life, I was put in touch with a crisis team and they recommended one-to-one -one help after I was officially diagnosed with anxiety and depression. Obviously, the suicide attempt being the giveaway. I was in a hospital overnight and we had a brief talk asking questions and they kept me in overnight to make sure that I hadn't done any lasting damage due to my overdose and that's obviously when as we'll get to a little bit later on 
they noticed the self-harming scars as well. So they told me to get in touch with my GP, or rather my parents. I was very much, I needed a walkthrough. I needed a guide at this point. I was so dependent on other people by now because of you know everything that I'd, I'd sort of gone through. I was signed off work from my GP. My current GP is also a massive help. A man I totally forgot to mention is Dr. Petrie who is my main GP and he's been absolutely fantastic throughout the entire journey and he got me in touch with the Stamford Resource Centre and through him got me in touch with a man called Neil and the Stamford Resource Centre are full of absolutely wonderful people who do a fantastic job for people from all walks of life with all different mental health illnesses I think is the appropriate term and I remember him because while I was very clammed up I was very locked up at this point he was one of those people who made it so easy to open yourself up to we had weekly sessions for a few months and I remember just talking to him was probably the best help I could have gotten and like I say it's not been an easy journey as consequent attempts haven't resulted in the same help i remember quite a few times i've had to go to group therapies to sort of jump through the hoops before i can get sort of one-to-one and unfortunately I've, I've not ever reached that point so so to this day neil remains probably one of the people who's made the most difference in my life just because some of the things he said that definitely stick with me and I think I think it will be comforting to a lot of people out there who are listening, who have their own struggles and their own demons. But I remember he was saying on um, the statistics of people with mental health. He said previously it was one in five people struggle with mental health. Obviously at the, at the time he was telling me this. Now it's classed as one in three people have uh, poor mental health. He then went on to say that he disagreed completely, and he said that at some point in their life everybody will have some form of poor mental health whether that be grief whether that be breakups whether that be anxiety depression schizophrenia bipolar anything like that you will deal with in one way or another yeah it's really interesting you say that matt because this is actually something that i spoke with my friend paul mcgregor on his episode did with me when he talked about it's not one in three it's one in one so you've really echoed that point there I just want to move on because you said that your mental health got worse because you weren't confronting your problems and meeting them head on. Have you got better at doing that now and stepping out of your comfort zone? And also, now you've survived both these attempts, what have you learned about yourself and what maybe is the one thing you wish other people would know about suicide that might have helped you back then? I've 100% gotten so much better at doing that ever since it's been in the spotlight so to speak and that's with my parents knowing my friends knowing I've definitely started opening up a lot more I tend not to keep too much to myself if anything at all if I have an issue now I'm a lot more likely to talk about it and interestingly it was only even up until this very year I'm still getting to grips with being open and honest about everything as it was only sort of earlier this year in 2021 that I was honest with my gambling addiction to my family, my parents. We'll get back to this, obviously, but they were just so supportive. 
the one thing that always kind of irks me about people's views on suicide is when they say that it's selfish. I think it's an easy cop-out just to say it's selfish. I think it's more to do with the fact that it is, it's the final hurdle that people do to deal with their own issues. I've probably worded that horrifically. What I mean is that, for example, while for some people it might be medication, for some people it might be talking with people, unfortunately for a lot of people the final solution, that's the word I I couldn't think of, is to unfortunately take their own life, which I can understand and I think a lot more people need to understand that they're not doing it, it's just because they're in so much turmoil they don't know what to do they've got all these emotions and thoughts and experiences and they they can't make head nor tail of them and i think rather than just saying they're doing it because they're selfish i think it needs to be looked on as it's a last resort as someone who attempted it myself i'm probably very biased but in my mind i wasn't thinking about anyone else which is probably where people say it's selfish But in my mind, I was just thinking I would do anything to not have to deal with this anymore. You've mentioned it several times during the pod map. So we're going to come to it now, which is the topic of self-harm. So throughout this period that you were in a very bad state with your mental health, you were self-harming. And it's important to state to the listeners that self-harm can take many forms. It can be overeating. It can be stereotypical methods such as cutting or lacerations, it could be drinking excessively, it could be substance abuse, it could even be gambling addiction, which we'll come on to in a second. When it comes to your self-harm, break down that stigma for me. How did it affect you or what did it give you? Was it an emotional release? Was it a way to vent your emotions? And then without going into too much detail, how did it take place? To be honest, it took place in pretty much all all of the ways, the ways you expressed I was overeating, you know, I'd feel down, so I'd comfort eat. That was definitely something that took hold. It wasn't really too much of an issue, as obviously thanks to my braces, I was fairly skinny at this point. It's only really something that was very recently I'm seeing the effects of, especially with the lockdown and everything. No doubt I'm not the only one who's put on a few pounds during the lockdown, but it's, it's definitely something that I'm wary of. Not so much fixating on, as I was when I was younger, but definitely something I need to keep a lid on. Drinking as well was a big factor. By this point, I I was struggling to sleep, which just made everything so much worse. If you don't have a good night's sleep, you're setting yourself up for failure in terms of dealing with mental health. So I was struggling to sleep, and the one thing that always helped me fall asleep, I say that very loosely, it's mostly passing out really, was just getting drunk. So... Every day after work, I would head to the pub, I'd get myself loaded, getting home, blacking out, and then waking up, or coming to the next day, thinking, oh, brilliant, I might as well actually get some sleep last night. Obviously, it was the wrong kind of sleep, if any kind. I wasn't doing my brain any favours, it wasn't getting the rest it needed to, to help crack on and focus on my journey, which just led to everything getting worse and worse and I remember probably the most 
physically destructive way was, like you say, with cutting and lacerations, the stereotypical way. I always chose areas that people couldn't see unless I wanted to show them, which obviously I wouldn't, or rather I wouldn't to those sort of random people. I'm at the point now where I'm quite happy, or I was quite happy showing my parents when they asked, my doctor, those kind of people. It's not something I just sort of pop out when I first meet someone. And I think I did it because it was the only thing I could control. I was losing so much sense of control with not being able to sleep. I couldn't control that. I couldn't control what I was thinking, how I was feeling. That was something that I could finally control. So if things were going bad, I would use that. And as well as the essence of control, it was for punishment as well. So if I'd done something awkward or said something awkward or upset someone or or done something that I shouldn't have done, that's when I would turn to that sort of method. There are many listeners who might not understand how anyone can deliberately hurt themselves when they're already suffering. So if there are people like that who are listening, what are the right things to say if they know someone in their life is self-harming? And maybe what are the wrong things to say too? The most important thing is not to judge, which probably sounds so cliche, but for me at the very least, one of my biggest anxieties and worries is being rejected. Not so much in a, you know, if I ask a girl her number and she says no, you know, I can live with that kind of thing. But being rejected as a person and for not being taken seriously or not being appreciated for who I am. I think a lot of people make the mistake of, for people they love, and I remember I've heard other people say this, that they've told their partner and their partner they've tried to be supportive. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I remember a friend saying that their partner said, if you love me, you won't do it anymore. To try and get them to think of someone else. I can kind of understand sort of why people would say things like that but it's very much a case of that's probably the absolute worst thing you could say because you're not giving them an option you're setting the rules for them and if they have a moment of weakness as everybody does and they do unfortunately return to that kind of behavior or doing that even if it's just on a one-off because you've said oh, you wouldn't do this, you feel like this, or essentially emotionally blackmailing them in a way. Because of that, they're just going to feel even worse. And speaking from from my own experience, and the the friend who told me about this, about their experience as well, they'll probably just end up taking more extreme measures. And if you know about the prior one, you definitely won't know about the more extreme one. So I think rather than just saying, don't do it, even if you don't want them to do it. It's not a case of, being like, I'll do it if you want to. It's just saying, well, for me at least, I know everybody's different, but for me, saying things like, I wish you didn't, you don't deserve it. Just making sure they know how appreciated and loved they are for who they are. And just saying that if they do it, so, for example, saying to someone, if you do it, I'll be sad, but it's not going to change how I see you. 
I'm not going to see you as weak. I'm not going to judge you. I'll be I'll be sad that you're doing it, but I'm always here if you need, and I'll look after you and, and just something like that, just to let them know. So they don't feel like if things are really bad, they can't do it without feeling even worse. But just so that if they do turn to do that or try to do that, that they've still got someone they can fall back on. The final part of your journey, Matt, is gambling addiction, which is also a form of self-harm in many ways. Now, it started after your first suicide attempt. Just tell me about how and why your urge to gamble began, how it affected your mental health, and then what point you realised it was maybe more than just a habit and you were no longer in control. Off air, we actually spoke about how it was such a recent development, and I mentioned it briefly earlier. That's sort of the vinyl thing I've had to hammer home. Yeah, it mostly started when I was 18. It was very much a case of, I always used to watch the football with my dad. You know, he would always go to the bookies on the Saturday morning and put some bets on and all the rest of it. Because he'd been doing it for so long and limiting himself so well, it was something he was very much in control of. And while he was probably spending more than he needed to or should have, it wasn't more than he could afford. My parents would intentionally leave that little pocket money aside for him to gamble with. So he had a set amount every week. And once that was gone, that was gone. That was it. There was no getting it back. And I think the mindset you have to be in if you're going to gamble, if you're going to be in on that, is as soon as that money has left your hands, left your account, that money is gone. You've already spent it. If you win, fantastic. That's new money. But don't see it as... Oh, I've got I've got this floating around, this magical number floating around. As soon as you spend it, consider that loss. I think that's an attitude I didn't have. It was very much a case of I saw it as an investment, if you like. It was something that I always struggled limiting myself with. As by this point, as I say, I had no motivation. I was struggling. The only thing really I was doing productive and, and proactive was seeing Neil at the resource centre and after the two weeks of being signed off working at my job so I was getting a little bit of money coming in obviously with drinking as well as by this point this was still fairly out of control it was still something I was doing pretty regularly I had very little money anyway so I saw gambling as a get-rich-quick scheme I gambled briefly from when I was 18 but it really took hold after my suicide attempt because by this point I'd split up with my ex who could see that it was becoming more and more of an issue as the relationship went on and I made that age old argument of oh things will get better don't worry I won't do it anymore which just wasn't true I wasn't being honest with her and, and that I think was the biggest factor in the relationship ending and I saw it kind of as an escape as well as I had so little happiness elsewhere in my life that when I would win I'd feel super good about myself. I remember the one time I had quite a big win. I won just under a thousand pounds from three pound. So from one three pound bet, I nearly made four figure. So that was amazing as, as my entire family was sort of happy for me. And it meant I could buy my own laptop, my first ever laptop, which was fantastic as well. And that's really when it started getting worse and worse. 
because I thought, brilliant, I've got this laptop from a measly £3 bet. What else can I get? What else can I buy? And at this point, I'm going to probably butcher his second name, but Dan Blazarian, I believe. You know, he, he had all his Instagram posts and, and stuff like that. And he, he was super in, in the limelight for living luxury, being this poker player gambler, really. I, I thought, brilliant, what if I can get to that kind of point? So when I sort of first started gambling, I'd limit myself to £1 bets at, at maximum. I'd already broken this by the time I ended up having my laptop as I was putting £3 bets on, which soon added up. And I remember over the course of about six months, I'd won probably a couple of thousand that I was showing my friends, being like, oh, check out this win I had the other day. Check out this win that I had. Check out this, check out this. And they were like, dude, this is awesome. This is fantastic. So they were encouraging me. But what they didn't see was all the money that I'd lost. So while I'd probably ended up winning, you know, a couple of thousand, I remember that the last time I checked the history of all the bets that I'd ever done, I think it was up somewhere close to 10,000, which for spending 10,000 and getting two back, yeah, obviously not in the, in, in the green there. When was the moment you decided to quit? That's been something that's been on and off. So initially, after I got a new job, that's when I was like, right, this is a higher paying job than I had in retail. I'm now going to save my money. I'm not going to gamble because I'm going to have so much money from this new job. Didn't last, unfortunately. Went back to it and I had even more money to then gamble, which led to things getting worse and worse in that regard. And it was actually only this year that I really thought this is getting out of hand out. And the reason for that is because last year I got a new phone. I was doing upgrade and I was feeling good about myself sort of mentally better than I've been in a long time probably the best part of a decade really so I remember I got my phone and by this point I was thinking right I'm ready for some new responsibilities so while it used to be in my parents name because obviously they signed up to get my first ever phone and you know, you get the loyalty bonuses and all the rest of it for sticking with the same sort of contractual agreement. So I'd always stuck with them. But then last year, I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this for myself. It's going to be a good thing to do for myself, get practice at and, and get myself in an even better position. Unfortunately, that would end pretty badly. And it was only last month that I fixed that situation because I found out that while in the past I'd never spent more money than I had, so you know my, my paycheck for the week would disappear by the next week because of, of gambling or drinking or anything like that, but now I could pay for things with my phone, and I've, I don't know what the allowance is. I, I'm not too sure the, the exact figures, but it basically meant that I could spend more than I had, and that led to me getting in quite a few hundred pound of debt obviously still gambling at this point as well thankfully finished drinking you know it wasn't being saved i was just spending it on more gambling and more gambling getting myself into more debt and i was very fortunate to have the supportive family that i do have so many people i think have it and that's not to take anything away from from my circumstance but so many people have it a lot worse because i'm blessed that i had my brother who lent me 
the money I needed to pay off all my debts and wipe the slate clean so to speak and then pay him back when I was able to and that sort of opened my eyes because I calculated how much I owed him I calculated how much I owed my parents and I worked out that you know if I keep gambling I'm not gonna be able to pay them back and I'm just gonna get myself into a worse position than I was before and then that was the real wake-up call and the last time I gambled really was was probably late January early February this this year 2021 thankfully last month I finally cleared up all my debts I don't owe anyone a penny and I've got a decent amount in, in, in my bank still it's one of the hardest addictions to deal with purely because I'm hoping this doesn't sound sort of too cold too dark or whatever but with alcohol addiction with drug addictions there is a limit the limit while it's, it's, it's not a limit I wish on anyone or that anyone intentionally tries to reach the limit unfortunately is overdosing or, or passing away due to complications whereas in terms of gambling if you've got a credit card there is no limit the sky's the limit you can spend hundreds thousands tens of thousands on it and, and there's been so many stories that you read about in the paper of someone saying I'm now £50,000 in debt or something like that. I was very fortunate that I never got to that point. And I think that's what kept it going on for so long. The fact that because up until last year, I wasn't spending more than I had, in my mind, there wasn't a problem. Because I was thinking, well, I'm only spending what I can afford to spend. Whereas in reality, that meant I couldn't do anything else. Our final topic of conversation, Matt, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter and a chat about our mental health. So, firstly, how is your mental health at the moment, mate? I think it's one of the strongest it's, it's ever been. By this point, I've, I've learned a lot of my triggers for going through poor situations, which meant that I don't drink as much, if at all. I don't gamble. I try and steer clear of self-destructive things like that. And recently I've been working with, as I was talking to you off air a couple of months ago, a team called the Social Prescribing Team. And what they do is they look for things for you to do that are proactive in your area. And they are basically the middlemen, the go-between. So, for example, I've been going on a lot of walks recently with the Mindspace charity. And the Social Prescribing Team have been the middlemen for that. So they go with me to make sure that I don't feel overwhelmed. So I've got someone there I know. And yeah, I would say based off the fact that I'm getting out and about, I'm being a lot more social, I'm avoiding things that previously would would have affected it the most, it's in a very good place right now. What age do you think you were when you first became self-aware and realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical, and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health. I think I had an inkling around when I was 15, 16. But by that point, I was still hiding it fairly okay. I don't think anyone sort of knew. I think it was when I was 18, that's when it kind of first came about. That, you know, something is wrong here. Something's not quite right. There's more to this than meets the eye. I think it, it was when I was... 
around 2021, as in 2021 years old, as opposed to this year. So it wasn't until two years after sort of I was officially diagnosed with it after my suicide attempt that I started to realise, okay, yeah, I kind of see what this is. I kind of understand what this is and how I'm feeling and how it's not the norm. Tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health, Matt. Who was it with? How did it go? And at the time, did it feel like a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it feel like something quite insignificant, quite normal to do? I think the biggest conversation I had was probably the first one. And that was just after my suicide attempt. As during my first suicide attempt, take, trying to take the overdose, my parents found me midway through taking them. And they were obviously rightfully losing their minds like thinking what what on earth's going on as they had no idea i remember went to the local hospital and i remember one of the nurses sort of talking to me saying what led to you doing this and this was the first point in which my mum knew about my mental health about how i was feeling what i was thinking it was a combination of a weight being lifted but then also it added the extra worry of what are my parents going to think and that's been something that has stuck with me somewhat I'm always kind of worried about what my parents are going to think mostly because I don't want them to think it's their fault as I've been really lucky to have a really good upbringing by my parents and my brother and sister they've always been supportive of me and I don't want them to blame themselves thinking that they've done something wrong it's unfortunately just a part of life a part of my life definitely and just finally mate what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to do it i think it kind of fits in somewhat with what i was talking about earlier in the fact of just not judging them Obviously, as a species, I think we're always that way inclined to look and compare ourselves with other people and everything. But I think if it's someone you're close to, if it's someone you're friends with or or your family with, the best thing you can try and do is somewhat live in their shoes a little bit. So, for example, when sort of my mental health was first brought into the spotlight, my dad didn't really understand too much, which led to a lot of bitterness between us I think just because he didn't know how to deal with it himself and I didn't really know how to to share it because obviously you've got all this stigma of you've got to be a man all that toxic BS really but then I remember he came with me to a, a few group sessions we had about mental health and I think that opened his eyes to just how normal it is really and that's not just necessarily anxiety and depression I would say that's like we were saying earlier the mental health stats basically one-to-one pretty much everyone is going to go through some form of poor mental health at one point or another just being there and just doing your homework really if you don't understand it don't let on to the people who are opening up to you that you don't understand it in a way so obviously if you don't understand just be like well could you explain this a little bit for me if that's okay and all the rest of it and doing something yourself so for example all it takes is a quick google search to find out how to help people 
what they go through, what they think. There's so many different stories that people have out there. And it's just important to remember you're not alone. And the people who deserve to be in your life will understand or at least make the effort to understand. Matt Tubb, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. Thank you to Matt for being so open, so honest with me, letting me check in with him. Everyone has something going on in their life, no matter who they are. So just make sure you try and recognise that and be kind in as much of your life as possible. As always, thank you to all the venters. Thank you to everyone who's tuned in. I'm going to sign us off by saying, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Give it a share with your friends or your work colleagues. Tell them all about it. Tell them about all the great work we're doing here at Vent. If you like what we're doing and want to support us further, please consider dropping us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and help us with those algorithms or support our Patreon by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. If you want to make a one-off donation, you can also visit our GoFundMe and that's in our link tree on all our social media channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent.